and welcome to this episode of the Tambellini Group's Top of Mind podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Ilkani, and I'm joined today by Rachel Clemens. Rachel has been in higher ed for about 15 years. She was most recently a CIO and has joined the Tambellini Group as our Vice President of Industry Relations. Rachel and I are going to have a different conversation today than we typically do on the podcast. We're going to be talking about the coronavirus and COVID-19. So listen in for what you might want to think about on your campus for how to prepare. Welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Well, thanks so much, Caitlin. It's great to be here. And please call me Ray. Everybody does. Absolutely. Well, Ray, you and I are recording this now on March 3rd, 2020, and this is a very evolving situation. By the time we publish this podcast, some things might be a little bit different, but since this is such a top of mind issue and we can see a lot of chatter about this topic within the higher ed IT community, I thought we should have a discussion around how do you prepare if you're an institution and and what should IT be thinking about? So my first question for you is really around disaster recovery and business continuity plans. Colleges and universities in the U.S. generally have these plans. So do they need to do anything special for the coronavirus if it were to impact an institution? Yeah, so you're right. Um, Colleges and universities absolutely have these plans. Uh, Many of them do. The regularity with which they're tested and updated can can vary depending on the institution. And I think that's where um, some of these conversations are happening on the CIO listservs around this. Have you updated your plan recently? What does it look like? The other thing is institutions, um, these plans often cover things like major outages, um, unfortunately active shooter, natural disasters, but these are things that are usually contained somewhat in time. Um, You know, an event on campus might happen over a course of a couple of hours. Natural disasters maybe are a little bit more extended, but they're fairly contained. So something like this, like the coronavirus, has very far-reaching potential challenges that might not be fully um, addressed or thought through in a traditional disaster recovery or continuity plan. Of course, the university has to consider many things, not just IT, but on the IT front, um, leaders should be really thinking about a couple of things. The first is their teaching and learning environment. The second is remote workforce or remote workers. And the third, if they're a primarily residential campus, is the implications of of just that, of being a residential campus. Let's take those three areas that you just mentioned one by one, starting with teaching and learning. Our data tells us that virtually all universities have an LMS, a learning management system, and many campuses have experienced offering at least some online courses. So this shouldn't be too difficult to manage, right? You'd think, (laughs) but um, yes, we know that most institutions have a learning management system, Um, but in most institutions, it's pretty likely that not all faculty are using the learning management system, the LMS, and in some institutions, it's possible, depending on how they have it configured, that not even all courses are in the LMS. So there's the first question is, is everybody there and do faculty know how to use it? 
Um, and I would say that, that when we're hearing and seeing institutions talk about um, this, uh, this potential disaster, I should say, I, I don't know that it's going to be one, um, but the coronavirus, this is kind of where they're focusing their conversation is around this idea of how do we have continuity around teaching and learning. So there are a lot of questions here. Things like um, your LMS is probably enterprise-wide licensed, so you probably have the ability to put everybody in there. But um, what if your faculty want to use video conferencing tools because they want to do synchronous learning still? They want to hold kind of a face-to-face -face class, but over um, a video conferencing tools. Do you have access? Do they have enough? Do you have enough licenses for that? And then what about other popular extensions that would make the LMS more feature-rich for a completely online teaching and learning environment? Things like test-taking tools, so something like ExamSoft or Respondus or, or a tool like that. And you have to think about everything else that supports the teaching and learning environment. So what about access to information like the library? So can your faculty and students log in from off-campus to get to the resources they might need to continue working on their research paper? And do they know how to do this? So many institutions, you know, have thought through these questions on the institutional side, but there's an even more important question to consider on this, which is the student side. Will your students have access? So if your institution is shut down and students have all been sent home and some of those have been quarantined, for example, in their, their homes, um, will they have access? Do they have the um, internet bandwidth? Do they have a computer in they, their home? We know, um, for example, that institutions who serve students from primarily low socioeconomic backgrounds, they know um, and we know that students in those environments are much less likely to have a computer or internet access in their home. So do your teaching and learning tools offer a good mobile experience um, such that a student could participate in classes or do what they needed to do via a mobile device? Most of the tools that we use will say they're mobile friendly, but you know, that's, there's a wide variety of what friendly actually means in that environment. Um, and then there's one more thing to consider. What about your faculty? Do your faculty have access from their homes? Do you provide your faculty with laptops? Will they have access to the technology that they need um, to be able to continue to teach? So, you know, there's a lot to think about here um, and uh, it's pretty far reaching. But there are also some really good places to start when you're thinking about this. We know there are some um, universities who've already jumped right in um, because they've had to. So if you look at examples like um, Duke's Kushan University, um, and I think also NYU has a Shanghai um, uh, environment as well, and they've had to jump in. And then there are some resources that are being published right now that can be extremely helpful. So we know that Daniel Stanford, who's the Director of Faculty Development and Technology Innovation in at DePaul, uh, we know that Daniel Stanford, Director of Faculty Development and Technology Innovation um, at DePaul, has published a um, shared Google document called Emergency Remote Teaching Guidelines. And in it, he's listed, I don't know, um, a couple of dozen universities and their policies and practices around this. So this is a really good place and a good resource for um, folks to go if they want to look at what other institutions are doing and get a head start on this. That's a great resource. Well, you've listed a lot of areas to think about for maintaining the continuity of teaching and learning during a potential pandemic. What about the administrative side of the house? What should IT leaders be considering to support remote work over an extended period? 
Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. We know that telecommuting has grown significantly in recent years. And in fact, um, you and I both telecommute. We work remotely. Yes. But only about 5% of U.S. workers telecommute. And colleges and universities in particular have been a little slow to adopt these types of programs. So we tend to favor more face-to-face employees with maybe an occasional work-from-home option for some types of work, but it's certainly not consistent across all departments. Um, You'd be hard-pressed to see a registrar's office, for example, with an entirely Mm -hmm. remote workforce. That's the type of thing you kind of want on campus so your students can come and and visit um, that office. So many universities' policies might need to be modified or at least temporarily put on hold to even allow this um, to to be considered as an option. The other thing is, you know, you need to think about is um, if you were to shut down your university, could your employees effectively work remotely? So you might offer a VPN service or remote access to various systems, but do your employees currently use them? Do they know how to use them? I was talking to another CIO yesterday And he said, you know, not only do you have VPN available, but what's your bandwidth coming in? You might um, have, you know, sort of maximum concurrent usage right now of maybe 10 or 15 people. But what if you had to scale up that that a number to 150 or 200 or 300 people all coming into your VPN at the same time to be able to work remotely? Could you even handle that? Um, then you have to think about some of the questions I asked about for faculty, things like, do your employees have laptops? Um, if not, do they have a reliable computer and internet access at home, assuming that that's where they would be contained to? And then I think, you know, when you start to think about the way in which employees work today um, in many of these departments, one of the risks is that it's hard to know how much manual work and shadow systems are involved in various processes. So typically speaking, if you have VPN, you're going to make sure that your employees can get access to the ERP um, so they can do work. But they may not have access to things like the check printer uh, because that's sitting uh, in a, you know, in a secure environment on your campus somewhere. Or they may not have access to their desktop, which has the access database that they download information into and then, you know, secondarily mm-hmm. process in that access database. So it, it can be a very complicated environment. Um, now in these types of cases would be a really good time to think about some of those key processes. So looking at, for example, the person who runs payroll and really digging into what that payroll process looks like and making sure that, um, you know, they're not downloading it into a spreadsheet, manipulating it, uploading it into a different system. And if they do, if that is a necessary part of the process, could they do that all remotely? Is that, um, is that possible? And more importantly, is that secure? If they're doing that on a home computer, on a personal computer, outside of the institution, um, you know, are they downloading things locally or is that still contained within your, your VPN environment? So there's a lot to, a lot to consider here. Um, what else? There's, there's more to consider as well. So thinking about the input side, if we roll with that payroll theme, for example, um, most institutions, or I shouldn't say most, but at least some institutions won't pay you if you haven't submitted a time card. So if all of your employees have been sent home and some of them may or may not have access to um, internet, a computer, or the systems they need to do their work, will they be able to submit a time card uh, successfully and on time? (laughs) And 
And what might you do about that? Might you pay them anyway? I know um, when I was in the state of California many years ago, there were some provisions for paying employees um, in certain disaster types of situations, regardless of that state, because they wanted to make sure that folks, you know, weren't missing, um, weren't missing a paycheck, and they would kind of, you know, catch up the accounting later. So, you know, payroll is just one key process, uh, and there are a lot of things that could break down if you just think about that one process. So if institutions haven't really done this already, you know, it's probably going to be really important to identify some of those most mission-critical processes. What are the things that absolutely have to occur? Um, and really dive into them and kind of take them apart piece by piece and make sure that um, every single component of those could be done in a, in a remote situation. One more thing to think about, which is your IT teams. If you are an IT leader, in addition to access to all these systems, what about your own teams? Could, you, could they support a remote work environment? So, you know, I know having been in this environment that many um, of the backend uh, teams, so programmers, infrastructure folks, people like that, already have the capability to work remotely. But many of, um, many of the people who work on desktop support teams and possibly even service desk teams don't. Those are often more face-to-face -face positions. So what about those teams? Do they have laptops? Do they regularly use remote support tools? And could they access those from home? Do you have enough licenses for them to do that? And how would you support employees who are now working um, in a distributed environment, potentially from their own devices, which are things that, that universities typically don't support to make sure that you're, you're providing continuity of support on the IT side as well. Well, Ray, there seems to be quite a few moving parts here for our IT leaders in higher ed to be considering. Yeah, I think so. You know, and it can be, a, you know, I don't wanna, it can be overwhelming, but I think it also can be a, a, a fun challenge. It's a real, um, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste, right, is the saying. So it can be a real opportunity to really think through some of these things and, and maybe potentially change the nature of how you work, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Well, let's go back to one of your original points around the fact that residential campuses present additional challenges that IT leaders should be thinking about, in particular, when planning for a potential coronavirus outbreak or really any kind of epidemic situation. Why are residential campuses different? Wouldn't they face the same issues as other institutions, especially around teaching and learning and remote workers? Well, sure, yeah. They're gonna face um, the same type of, of, of challenges. They're gonna have to look at teaching and learning and how you conduct that remotely. They're gonna have to look at the workforce. But they also have to face the possibility that um, those students might be sheltered in place, essentially. You know, if you're looking at a quarantine situation, you might have a residence hall that becomes um, quarantined or something similar. And it's tempting to think about that as primarily a housing and dining problem, and it, you know, it is for the most part, but there are some other implications for IT teams too. So let's just say you have a residence hall that has 100 students in it, um, and they are, they're now sheltered in place. They're locked down for two weeks. Can your residential network handle, I don't know, 100 bored 20-year-olds who are doing nothing but streaming Netflix and playing multiplayer games all day um, mm -hmm. online? You know, what if they, and that's, you know, that's sort of an extreme example, but what if they also simultaneously needed to attend class via um, a Zoom meeting, for example? Would, would 
your network be able to handle that. Uh, we also know that a lot of times residential networks are segmented from the general network. So can your students get access to the services online that they would normally be able to just walk over to, like the library? Um, another thing to think about, which I think is kind of interesting, is dining. So if students can't physically go to the dining hall, how do you think about getting their orders? Do you have electronic ordering? Do you have some kind of web page or mobile app that they can um, place those dining orders and make sure that um, any necessary dietary restrictions or food preferences or choices are sort of accounted for in that process. So, you know, I think there's, um, there are a few things to consider on the IT side and there may be, you know, additional opportunities if you think about sort of access and um, identity into the dorms, those card systems, for example. The other thing that I think is important to know is that when you have primarily residential campuses, those students and those faculty um, primarily operate in a face-to-face -face environment. That's that's sort of the point of a residential campus, it's, that it's really a face-to-face -face and very um, deeply enriched environment. So that could present some added challenges as well for moving everything into more of an online teaching and learning class or online teaching and learning environment because those students may never have taken an online course before and don't necessarily know how to, how to operate in that environment either. That makes sense. There, you know, when you think about the full spectrum, it's like a, a small city on campus. It is. I mean, that that is the thing is that I think we think about colleges and universities as educational institutions, but they really are. You know, you typically have a police force, you have um, dining facilities. These are people's residences, so it really is much more like a a small city than it is um, like a high school, for example. Well, and with everything we've discussed, it sounds like it could get overwhelming. And it's not clear yet that coronavirus will have a significant impact in the U.S. broadly, though some epidemiologists are saying that that's inevitable. We don't know yet. How should IT leaders really be thinking about this, do you think, Ray? Well, I think every institution needs to think about their risk profile, right? So, you know, what's the potential risk? What's your risk tolerance um, or potentially sense of fear? You know, what's happening around this particular um, situation in your particular environment? And some institutions, I think, are going to go all in on continuity planning because of it, because their, their profile is such that, um, you know, that makes sense. And other institutions might take a little bit more of a wait and see approach. And I guess we'll only know in the end who was, who, who was right in that approach. Um, but the problem in either of these, it, you know, if you really take it as a, it's the coronavirus, we have to face the coronavirus um, and deal with that, is that you never really drive the sort of meaningful change, right? You're really focused on the particular situation and responding to that particular situation. And once that's gone, um, once that, that challenge is gone or if it never fully materializes, everybody sort of goes back to business as usual. So I think, and I think I mentioned this earlier, that, you know, there's a real opportunity here. If we think about, you know, remote work, for example, we have growing workforce issues in higher education, especially in IT. And, um, and this could be a real opportunity for us to think what, think about what a truly modern workforce and modern work environment looks like and use this not as um, 
the, the driver specifically, but as an example of the types of things that might want to encourage us to look at a different way of working and really engage our peers in this broader conversation. And I think that presents an opportunity for potentially really significant and meaningful change. Ray, we're getting to the end of our time together, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on takeaways for the IT leaders listening to the show today. Where do you think they should get started? Well, there was a lot. We covered a lot. And so I think, you know, if I had to focus on three things, I would say um, they are these. The first I would say is consider what it means to be a truly modern and digital workforce, as I was just talking about. And, and start, you can start small. Start with just the basis of access. What sort of device are you providing your faculty and staff? So I'm, I'm surprised still when I'm on college campuses and, and most recently when I was the CIO of a, a university with how many colleges and universities are still providing their employees with desktop computers or if a laptop is an option, it might be a, you know, a buy up option where the department has to kick in some funds um, and we're charging the departments the difference. So I think really think about first eliminating barriers to mobility and you can do that by starting with the device and looking at those policies. The second thing I would say is, you know, work with your peers across the institution to identify the top two to three absolutely critical business processes in each of their area. So when you think about process improvement and mission critical processes, it can get very easy. It's very easy to get mired really quickly and wow, we have 52 processes and they're all really critical. Um, but really, what are those things that have to persist if all else fails? Payroll being a, a clear example of that, we have to pay people. And so really drill down into each of those, map them out, include all the shadow systems and dependencies, and then work to make them you know, truly digital processes, simple, intuitive, and ideally accessible via a mobile device, something that somebody could do with a couple of clicks of their thumb on a, on a device. And third, I would say, um, you know, work with your provost or the, the dean of the college and your academic leadership to talk about what meaningful faculty development looks like around technology. So too often, um, faculty development, especially for any technology tools, is as requested, and a lot of faculty just opt out. They, they don't have the time, they don't have the interest, or whatever. So it, it's, it's unrealistic to think that everybody in an institution is going to be interested in teaching a, a fully online course. But I know that some institutions, I think um, around the H1N1 time perhaps, started requiring that all courses have a shell in the LMS and then all faculty at minimum posted their syllabus there. So there's a lot of other options now. We can look at running synchronous classes through a web conferencing tool um, or using tools like Slack or Microsoft Teams. Other universities are using WordPress or doing a domain of one's own presence. So there's a lot of opportunities to provide a virtual forum for faculty to engage with students. And I think it's, it's really incumbent upon um, IT leaders and academic leaders to sit down and really think about what that looks like at their institution and then figure out how to ensure that every faculty and every student is equipped to engage in that environment, whatever that environment is for you. The last thing I think I would say, I know those are my three takeaways, so this is not a takeaway so much as just a word of advice is, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. I mentioned um, earlier the online resource from DePaul, and there are many, many institutions who have either 
charted this trail already in, in one or more of these regards um, or are grappling with the same questions. So that's the many, that's the really wonderful thing about the higher education community is you don't have to go it alone. You don't have to um, be a pioneer that you can actually work with others and learn from others uh, to jumpstart these initiatives. I agree, Ray. Those are all such good points and really appreciate you being on the show today to talk through how can our campuses here in the U.S. be thinking about you know, disaster preparedness in general and, and being a, a flexible and resilient campus. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's a wrap for the show today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Top of Mind. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can find us on all of your favorite podcast players, and you can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thank you.